Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. We cover a lot of history books here at NPR, and whether it's about a politician or an event or a social movement or whatever, each history book adds another layer of context or questions or information to our collective story. Ian Johnson is on the pod today. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who's got a new book out called Sparks, China's Underground Historians and Their Battle for the Future. In it, he documents China's growing grassroots movement to document their history and preserve real stories about labor camps, famine, and, you know, desperation. Listen to his conversation with NPR's John Ruich after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, so Ian Johnson and NPR's John Ruich start with some background information as to how we got here in China. But in his first answer here, Ian pushes back against this idea that all of China is a dystopian surveillance state. And it's a real testament to what the people who work on underground histories really have to go through. Your book is about these creators of Minjian Lishi, right? Grassroots history in China. And you write that it amounts to a movement. I want to dive into that in a little bit. But I, first of all, maybe you can talk a little bit about the, the backdrop, about the context in which this is happening, right? It's China. The Communist Party rules with a pretty firm hand. And it's gotten tighter and tougher under Xi Jinping, less tolerant of non-official viewpoints, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. This is a movement that really, I think this is one of the things I try to make clear in this book, that's been going on since the founding of the People's Republic of China nearly 75 years ago. And uh, even before that, uh, going back to before the party went into power, took power, people who have been challenging the party's monopoly on history. But it is continuing today, even in Xi Jinping's China. And I want to push back on some of the dominant ideas that we sometimes get abroad, that there's absolutely nothing going on in China except for a dystopian surveillance state. And I think that's definitely part of the story for sure. And I've reported on a lot of human rights problems and challenges in China over the decades. And it is worse now than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. But there are still people who are at it today. There are still people who are keeping alive the idea of a more decent, humane China that confronts its problems um, of the past and thereby lays the groundwork for a better China of tomorrow. These people have not been crushed. Describe why, that's, why you call it a movement. Yeah, I mean, a movement is not um, necessarily, let's say, people out on the street protesting. You know, there's a, a way of looking at protests as a three-act play. And we often look at the third act when people are out on the streets with placards, something like Tiananmen Square in 1989 as being a, a classic example of that, for example, or the Falun Gong protests of 1999 and 2000 and so on, when there's real action and you can see it, right? 
But the, the foundational work for any successful movement is usually laid in person-to-person contacts in very often more personal ways than we imagine. It's not social media, right? Social media is, is completely overrated in terms of getting social movements and, and change off the ground. You can get a straw fire like that. But to get people to really commit to something, you have to have the person-to-person relationships. And that's the sort of thing that I try to describe in China. It's it's not millions and millions of people across the country, but I would say it's tens and tens of thousands of people who are interested or active in this kind of movement. Um, and it's much more widespread than it was, say, you know, four or five decades ago or in the past. So why do you think, why do you think this exists, this Minjian Lishi? And, and can't the party snuff it out? Why doesn't that happen? Why does it exist? And why, why hasn't it been snuffed out? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the mechanics of why it exists, uh, the motivations are more that, you know, people want a more just country and they think that in order to do that, you have to, you know, deal with your past and so on and so forth. And you have to challenge the party's right to rule and so on and so forth. But the mechanics of how it's really taken off, I think, over the past two decades are basic digital technologies. This is the digital technologies of email PDFs um, of digital cameras, which are make it possible to make a documentary film, for example, on your laptop. You can make a magazine on a PDF. So uh, this has really been a game changer. There are magazines in China, underground history magazines, one particular that, that I write about in, China, in, in my book, that have you know been going on for 15 years since... Uh, 2008, and they have 340 issues now, and they're still publishing every two weeks. Now, that begs the question, as you said, why doesn't the government just snuff it out? I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, If you wanted to be cynical, you could say, well, the government doesn't think they're a threat, so they just let it go. But that doesn't then explain why the government makes such a big deal about history. I mean, I think the thing is that they can arrest some of the better-known people People who are just privately investigating something and circulating it on a slow burn level, that's harder for the party to get a grip on. Remind me of the name of the journal you just mentioned that has 300 plus issues. It's called Remembrance, or in Chinese, GE. And that's the same, it's the same cast of characters who've been involved in it all, all these years, though, right? I mean, yeah. they could easily. What explains their survival? That's interesting to me. Well, it's twofold. One is they have been careful to stop their historical explorations around the year 1980. So they're not talking about Tiananmen Square or COVID or something like that. They're looking more at at the Mao era. They don't go directly into the current era of Chinese politics. So that protects them to some degree. The other thing, which is an interesting takeaway that that I didn't realize when I went into this project is the productive interaction between people inside and outside China. You know, it used to be in the past when a dissident went overseas, um, they were kind of isolated and they often became sort of a sad figure or somebody who was railing against the party or, or something like that. And they had zero impact back in China. But now there are a lot of people in China who, who have contacts overseas and back and forth, people traveling back and forth a lot more, you know, COVID notwithstanding. So in the case of Remembrance, they have uh, young grad students and young historians, Chinese national historians in the United States and elsewhere who help them edit it and keep it going. 
as you just mentioned, you know, much of the chronicling of this history that's being done by these grassroots historians is virtual, right? And it's it's not being consumed in China. Some of it is, but it's certainly not being consumed widely. It's not mass market stuff for the most part, uh, which you point out in the book. Um, so, so what's the point? So why does it still matter? Uh, I mean, as you asked near the end of the book, is this is the work they're doing pointless or is it trailblazing? Right. No, I mean, one of the main people I write about, she quotes, there's a famous quote by Hannah Arendt that in dark times, any bit of light blinds us. And we don't know, is this just a candle flickering in the darkness or is this the blazing sun that will become important? And I think now there's a little bit of flickering, but what we don't know is what will happen in the future. I think any social movement starts with small groups of people, small numbers, and it can grow over time. Things that were once considered outlandish or, or radical are now considered mainstream. Mm. Uh, you write uh, near the end of the book, quote, in essence, the Chinese Communist Party's enemies are not these individuals, but the lasting values of Chinese civilization, righteousness, loyalty, freedom of thought. Can you explain that a bit? If there's one central idea, it's the idea of righteousness, righteousness, so E in Chinese. And that idea is that, along with that, is something like truth will prevail as well. And I think that they view the sufferers of the past, of the Mao era, but even of the current era, as people who deserve justice and that some kind of justice has to happen in order for a moral society to be constructed. This is a really old idea, going back to Confucius and so on and so forth. So you don't have to be a believer in any sort of Western ideas to be attracted to this if you're Chinese. Um, there was one guy I talked to who uncovered this this massacre in southern China in the, in the 1960s, and, you know, he was very, a little bit sort of crude and, and funny, garrulous old guy. And he says, you know, I can kiss ass as well as anybody. But there's one thing I can't do, and that's turn black into white. These people, this movement, this, this book that you've written about, these, about what these folks are doing in China, what they've been doing for 75 years, but what's happening today in Xi Jinping's China, what does it say about China? In writing this book, what did you, I mean, what did you learn about about the telling of history in China today. One of the things I wanted to accomplish with this, book, with this book was to challenge the idea that there is no free thought in China, that every that the Communist Party is one, that Xi Jinping controls absolutely everything. I wanted to show that there are still people in China who do have visions of another kind of China. There is another China out there. And that when we look at China from abroad, we sometimes have this idea that it's completely hopeless and that there's nothing worth knowing or experiencing there. And I think this is one of the reasons, for example, for the incredible drop-off in the number of young people today studying Chinese, going to China. It's not just COVID. This was happening before then. And I, I think it, once you get to know some of these people and, and, and hear their stories, you realize these are people who are struggling with very similar issues that we face in our countries also, in telling histories and maybe forgotten histories or suppressed histories. These should be our interlocutors in China, and they should be the subject of film festivals in the West, etc., etc., but they aren't yet, and I hope this book somehow addresses that.
This message comes from The New Yorker. What makes a short story work? Explore the minds of writers like Otessa Moshvag and George Saunders on the New Yorker Fiction Podcast to find out. Listen to the New Yorker Fiction Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com.